Everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading In the Arena by Isabel Kuhn, with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 6, Part 3. We were to leave the next morning. I prayed on Sunday, and we left on Wednesday. That is how fast the Lord worked for me. However, we were no sooner out of sight of La Choux City that our driver changed his manners towards us. All the smiles left, and he became nasty. All along the country roads, he stopped and picked up the forbidden yellow fish. At the main cities, his truck company had inspection posts, and just before arriving at these, the truck stopped and all the yellow fish had to get off and walk through the city and beyond the inspection post to the further side, where we picked them up again. Their baggage was coolly attributed to Ava and me, who of course had very little. Ava and I, having bonafide company tickets, we were saved all this bother. While we were still in the populous... Sheshuan and Kwaichow, our driver was not too uncivil, because twice we stayed overnight in the towns where the China Inland Mission had missionaries living, and he saw that we had friends to whom we could have reported his ill conduct. But once we began to go over the lonely mountain ranges into Yunnan, our driver showed his real colors. At one isolated spot, he stopped the truck, walked out in front of us, and deliberately showed us that he was an immoral man. Of course, we refused to look, but Ava caught my hand in terror. Don't be afraid, dear, I whispered. The Lord is with us, and in my heart, the Lord promised, I will watch over you wherever you go, and this is one of all those places. But now I knew that we had an unclean as well as unprincipled man to deal with. I feared most for little Ava and never let her out of my sight. The driver became became nastier and nastier to me, snapping savagely at any chance to order us around. When at length we pulled out of Kwaichow, where the skies were overcast all the way, and crossed the boundary into Yunnan, the sun burst forth in a golden glory, lighting up the green of the beautiful mountaintops. Now I know, I said to Ava, why they named our providence south of the clouds. We are south of cloudy Kwaichow, and in my heart was a burst of joy to be back again in the same providence, at least with John and the Lisu. But our worst trial lay ahead. From Keating, we hoped to make Kuming in one day. But that morning, as we gathered before those three trucks, it was raining. Some Chinese women appeared on the scene. Yellowfish? No. Free passengers, friends of the drivers. To my astonishment, my driver came up and said with a nasty look, You're to get into the truck number two. There's no room for her, indicating Ava. She can ride up in the back of my truck. I am very sorry, I replied politely but firmly, but we cannot separate and Miss Ting must have a cab seat. We have paid for cab seats. Well, you can't have it, he swore at me. There aren't enough cab seats, and these ladies, his smirking girlfriends, are relatives high up in the company. They come first. Then my indignation took fire. Look here, I said, speaking plainly, a deadly breach of Chinese etiquette. We have paid extra for cab seats, and we're going to have them and sit together. You've been taking on yellowfish, and if you do not give us our seats, I'll report you to your company. Then he really got furious. I knew he was swearing at us, but his words spat out of his mouth so fast, and his eyes glared and snapped, so that I was lost in the torrent of Chinese language. Ava, however, understood, and she began to cry. Oh, Yang Sumu, don't you know what he's saying? I don't mind standing in the rain. Let me go. He, he says he's going to throw us out in the lonely mountainside and leave us to the wild beast. Oh, don't make any more fuss. I'll go. Was there even ever a blacker moment? No one in Kuming knew we were arriving, so our non-arrival would not alarm our friends there. They might wait a month without concern for us. 
Another foreboding fact was that I did not have consular authority to return. So how could consular protection be asked for? But there is always one with us who is greater than the governments of this world. Again, desperately in my heart, I cried, Lord, your promise. I will watch. I had not time to finish the verse before a hand plucked my sleeve from behind and a Chinese voice whispered hoarsely, Get into my cab, quick, both of you. He whirled around, sprang into the cab of the second truck, and the driver shot into place behind the wheel, raced his motor, and off we sped, leaving my driver still swearing and trembling with rage. We were now at a much older truck, one that had broken down several times during the trip. But as we sped along in a good lead over the other trucks, our new driver turned to me and said quietly, Lady, never do that again. Next time you travel the Burma Road, you travel Yellowfish. All day long we kept in the lead and out of sight of the other trucks, and all day I prayed that this old truck would not break down again, and it did not. Another Chinese woman was with us so that Ava had to sit on my knee, or partially so, but our driver was very courteous and drove us right up to the Harrison's door. Luckily our baggage had been placed on his truck. We were safe. I will watch over you, and he had watched over us. He had never promised that we would not have trials, though. Dave Harrison gave us a resounding welcome, and soon Ava was back in her old place making us tasty meals. A letter from Mary Zimmerman was waiting for me. This dear friend had formed the habit of writing us long, newsy letters, quoting from letters which spoke of our circulars, so that a letter from her was like a round robin from everybody. I had so missed them. It was wonderful to be in touch again. Rain and more toothache and another visit to the dentist are recorded in my diary. Before our flight to Szechuan province, Kay had been teaching a Bible class attended by some university students. Dave had taught this class during our absence, but he wanted to make another trip to some needy country churches. Would I please delay going west about a half of a month to teach these English classes for him until he could get back? There was really no hurry for my return to Lesulan. The missionaries from Pashan, who had refugeed to Oak Flat, would teach the rainy season Bible school by interpretation so the Lei Su were taken care of. It was these Chinese students at Kunming who might disperse if the classes were dropped. As for Ava, Dave was quite pleased to have her to go with us to Lei Su. Since she had graduated from high school, Ava's mother had been angry at her for doing servants' work in the Harrison's home. Several times she had made it unpleasant for them, so Dave would be glad if Ava went with us. But for the next two weeks, would I stay? It was clearly my duty. I had heard some say that the need is not the call. I do not understand that. An obvious need is a call in any branch of human life. The Good Samaritan did not need a special Bible verse miraculously shining upon him to indicate it was God's will. He helped the poor fellow who had fallen among thieves. Where common sense clearly points out duty, there is the voice of God. We do not need any other, provided a higher duty is not claiming us. For a mother to cast aside her own child in order to go and care for her neighbors would not be God's will. She owes a higher duty to the human soul which she herself has brought into existence. Apart from that, the need is the call. I did not want to stay in Kunming. I wanted to get to John as soon as possible. I was desperately longing for one of my own to put his arms around me and comfort me. But dearer than any human love is the Master's, and I could not grieve him by disobedience. So I consented to stay, and Dave joyfully went on his trip. The students' class began to grow. One day I was asked if I would not teach a second Bible class. The evening class was mainly evangelistic, but some of these university students were now Christians and wanted deeper teaching.
One tall young Manchurian Jack was especially eager. When the Japanese conquered Manchuria, Jack's school had evacuated and he with it. He had married in his early teens and when he fled Manchuria, he had a little daughter, two years old. As the Japanese advanced, his college fled before them until finally they had reached Kunming. During the first few years away from home, Jack had corresponded with his wife. But for some years now, he had received no word from her at all. He did not know if she and the little girl were alive or dead. At Kunming, Jack had heard of Mrs. Harrison's English classes and had started to attend. Here he met the Savior and gave his life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. Jack was really born again and hungry for a deeper life with the Lord. I believe it was he who asked me to begin a morning class for Christians, and I was delighted to do so. By July the 7th, my diary records, I was teaching three classes, and one young man had accepted Christ as his Savior. But when Dave came back from his trip and could take over the classes, I felt released. Then the Lord worked for us. A friend's ambulance unit, British, was driving to Tali, and they offered to take Ava and me with them. Oh, how grateful I was that we need not travel that stretch of Burma Road on a Chinese truck. It was still the rainy season, and we needed cover. We left Kunming on July the 15th. Jack came down to see us off, expressing deep thanks and saying he had been very much helped. The FAU truck was delayed several hours, but Jack waited all that long time with us to make sure we got off safely. I never could forget that kindness, and we corresponded a bit from then on. I'd like to digress a moment to tell more of Jack. As soon as he was saved, he became burdened for his wife and her need to know the Savior if she were still alive. He had not seen her for ten years then, and the ordinary Chinese would have laughed at the thought of loyalty to her under such circumstances. It was a good Chinese custom for a man to have a concubine to travel around with him while the legal wife was left at home. Jack was tall, good-looking, and personable. He was not even sure his wife was alive. Why be so finicky? The only reason was the command of his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Seven more years of silence passed. Still, Jack was clean and single. By that time, he was an ordained Episcopal clergyman and had friends who were willing to send him to America for further training. That was, to any Chinese, a tremendous temptation. Study in America was the acclimate of good fortune to the young Chinese of those days, and Jack was human enough to fill the pull of it. He wrote to me about it and asked prayer for guidance. I would love to go to America, he said, but somehow I cannot go away from the burden of my wife and family. It is 17 years since I have seen them last. My little two-year-old girl would be a young woman of 19 now. I feel I should try to go and find them. Please pray for me, Mrs. Kuhn, that the temptations of this world would not sway me, but that I may do only the will of the Lord Jesus. A few months later, another letter dated from Peking. By this time, the communists were in control of Pancheria. I do not have the original letter, but in substance it ran thus. Dear Mrs. Kuhn, I decided to do the will of the Lord and go in search of my family. I resigned my position in Yunnan and came here hoping to get information as to how I might gain entrance into Manchuria. I found I could get a seat on a plane tomorrow, but it is a very dangerous procedure for a Christian to try to do this, and I am afraid. Oh, pray for me that my faith may not fail. I looked up the Christian family in this city whose address you gave me. They were very kind to me and asked me to supper. But, oh, Mrs. Kuhn, why is, is it that so few Christians ask to have prayer with me? I fly in tomorrow. If it is possible, I will write to you from there. If you never hear from me again, you will know that it is only because communication with you was not possible. Then followed silence. 
for three long years. Then, through a very roundabout way, Kay received a message. I have found my family. They have become Christians, and the Lord has given us a little son. So ends one of the sweetest little idols that I know of Christ's round table nights in China. And now to trace our thoughts back to July 17, 1942, and the Friends Ambulance Unit, which was pulling into Tali with Ava and Mama on board. Since she was coming to Lesulin, I taught Ava to call me by the name which I love most to hear from the Lesulin lip, Mama. I was longing to meet my husband. He had been writing to me from Tali and approved my delay in order to set Dave Harrison's free for country work, but I looked forward to joining him at Tali as soon as Dave returned. So I was all set to meet my dear husband, whom I had not seen for more than two months. Imagine the shock I felt on the arrival at Tali, to be told John had gone to Pashan with Dr. May and the medical unit. I was simply shattered. You'll never have anyone to love you, mocked Satan, taking advantage of my self-pity. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want you to have anyone but him to love you. It's very devastating to lend your ear to the evil one. If only we would learn that he never tells the truth. Not the whole truth, a half-truth he tells, which is ever worse than the lies. God was loosing my hold on human love. He was nailing my affections to the cross. But not that my life should be without love and loved ones. Merely that the inordinate affections should become ordered and controlled. The human props on which I leaned so heavily were bound to give way some time or other, just because they're human. And then, when they gave way, how painfully I sprawled, if I could only learn to receive my loved ones and yet not lean so heavily on them, hold them and yet not be so dependent on them. It was love, and tender, anxious love, that was disciplining me, and I was learning, although with such agony. Ava, for instance, was always watching to help me, but I already was alerted to the danger this could become. Watch that she does not become indispensable to you, was the Lord's tender warning in my ear. If you clutch her to your heart and she becomes indispensable as these others, you will have all this pain to go through again, for human props will always fail, sometime or other. Lean more on me, dear. I will never fail you nor forsake you. And so in loving Ava... There was now harnessed affection. Always I reminded myself to live in the light of the day when I must give her up to someone else. But I was slow to learn. The day after arriving in Tali, my diary reads, At noon I got a letter from John. He's not coming back until August. I felt so heartbroken. But then I received a letter from Gurley, the first one in over seven months. This happy letter reminded me that Roxy Fraser the dear wife of our late superintendent, would mother my little girl in internment camp, which she did. And all this time in Tali, the Lord was working for me that I might not be tried above what I was able to bear. 1 Corinthians 10.13 I inquired about Ava and myself proceeding to Pashan, but found a new difficulty. Tali was the last civil post. All west of Tali was in the military zone now, for the Japanese were still within the province. They were on the west bank of the Salween River, and the Salween Canyon, Lesulin, was now the front line of battle. No one could go west of Tali without military pass. Even American soldiers were not allowed as far as the Salween. They chafed to get there, but the Chinese were jealous of the front line and would not admit them. Pashan was only one day's journey from Salween, and John had gone through because he had attached to Dr. May's medical unit, which was Chinese. 
If American soldiers were not allowed in the Salween, how could I, a woman, ever get there? Please ponder that. Against it, put God's Genesis 28.15, and we'll bring you back to this land. Oh, how I clung to that, and how I claimed it in His presence. Ten days the Lord kept me praying and claiming that verse. Now watch how wonderfully He worked. John kept writing to me, urging that Ava and I join him in Pashan. He seemed to forget that we could not leave Tali without the military pass. At length, I decided to go to the resident of the General Song, head in command of the Western Yanan Front, and ask for a pass to Pashan for Ava and me. I shrank unspeakably about asking favors of these high-ranking Chinese. My best clothes I had left stored in Pashan, and they were stolen in the looting, which took place after the bombing. Expecting to stay in Kuming only a few weeks, I had not brought much with me, and some of what I brought was lost in the Flying Tiger's car, which broke down. Missionary friends had given me some of what they could spare, but I was painfully conscious of my shabby appearance. This did not help to give me pose. I got no further than the outer gate of the General Song's estate. His soldiers looked me up and down without much respect, kept me waiting a long time, and then sent me home without any pass. I learned later that they had not even sent in my application. This is what happened when I tried to move in my own strength. But see what happens when God moves. That very evening, an officer arrived at our China Inland Mission compound to inform Mrs. Kuhn that General Song had telephoned to Pashan and requested that John Kuhn come to Tali, the general providing transportation. The reason for this was not divulged at that time, but I was told to expect my husband soon. The reason unknown to me then was this. Checked at the Salwing Bridge on the Burma Road, the Chinese had gone north of the canyon, seeking another crossing. The tribes in those parts had received and helped them. Suddenly China had awakened to the importance of possessing the friendship of these poor earth people, as they had for centuries termed the tribes. But in order to solicit their cooperation, it was necessary to speak to the tribes. And who knew their language? The feudal lords, of course. So these were summoned to Tali and their influence requested. It was very soon evident they were utterly undependable, that they would sell their tribes to the highest bidder. Was there no one else who could who spoke Lisu? Then it was that the Lord brought the missionaries to the general's mind. Hence the phone call for John. He arrived at Tali on August the 4th, and what a reunion it was. That afternoon we went together to see General Song. I had a different reception this time. The officials at the gate bowed and scraped to us, and we were taken right into the beautiful mansion, which was the home of the songs. The general was very cordial to us and quickly summoned his charming wife, who spoke English well. It was then he told us frankly of his interview with the Sawin feudal lords. While I found they were all opium sots, he exclaimed, they cared about nothing but opium. I couldn't use them, so I sent for you. Will you help us solicit the friendship of the Lisu people? We told them we had already done so. We had told the Lisu that the Japanese would oppose their being Christians, and that alone was sufficient. It was significant to me that the Japanese won the west bank of the Salween up to the point where the Christian church became numerous. From then on, they were held back and conquered no more. General Song told us that he would give us a military escort right to the Oak Flat village, and John was to be made advisor to the National Guerrilla Colonel in charge of the Pinma Pass District, which was our Oak Flat church area. We were to leave in a few days. On our last night in Tali, so it was meant to be, but we were later delayed, the songs invited us to a Chinese feast in their home. 
It was a scrumptious affair, and Madam even had a lace tablecloth spread for our benefit. Chinese custom does not use tablecloths, as their tables are beautifully polished lacquer. I remember one dish appeared to be roast chicken. It was brought in with wings and legs properly trussed. Have you ever seen this dish before? asked Madam Song, who enjoyed my undisguised admiration of her cuisine. She took her chopsticks, stuck them into the breastbone ridge of the chicken, and with a flick of her finger, the chicken fell open. It had been completely boned. How they ever maintained that perfect shape without any bones to hold it together is still a mystery to me. Before the mill ended, General Song gave a command, and a smartly uniformed colonel was ushered in. I wish to introduce you to Colonel Hiss, who will be your escort to the Salween, announced the general. And then turning to the colonel, he issued crisp orders that we were to be well taken care of. It was like a dream. Not only a military pass to the point which might at any moment become front line of battle, but an escort too, and all expenses paid. Only God could do that and bring you back to this land. But I still had need to claim Genesis 28:15 once more before getting there. Dr. Roots had asked permission to ride with us as far as Pashan, where Dr. Wesley May's medical unit was still working. We were given a brand new truck for the trip. Ava and I sat in comfort in the cab with the driver, while Dr. Roots, John, Colonel, and the soldier escort rode in the open back. We'll find out next time what happened on this trip. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.